Hey, thanks, uh, thanks to our worship team for, uh, for leading us. Uh, they work very hard to get ready to, to lead us each week, and so I appreciate what they do and always want to thank them for that. I uh, want to uh, welcome you. Uh, once again, I know you've been welcomed uh, multiple times uh, tonight already, but welcome to Christian Campus Fellowship's Dinner and a Message. Uh, the first one uh, post-spring break for some of us, I know not everybody had spring break, but if you did have spring break, it's over. Boo. <laughs> Good uplifting message there, Donnie. All right, let's pray. Um, but uh, just glad you're here. Uh, glad to see everybody here. Uh, folks joining us on our live stream or checking us out on the podcast, thanks for doing that. Uh, yeah, my name is Donnie Holiday. I am one of your staff members, and I hadn't been up here in a while. Uh, we had, you know, had spring break last week and worship night before that, and Brandon absolutely killed it the week before that with, uh, with, with his message. Um, and if you're like, oh, I didn't hear that, well, we have this YouTube channel. You should check it out. Um, but I really, um, I really enjoy letting y'all know the things I'm learning, because that is what I see this time as. This is not about me being like, look at what I know, because trust me, the older I get, the more I realize there's a lot of things I don't know. Um, but I enjoy reading the Bible, I enjoy studying it, and looking at culture and context and language and all that stuff, and then I get to stand up here and tell y'all what I'm learning. I mean, it's, it's like, and I get paid to do this, I mean, this is a job, it's fantastic. Uh, so I'm excited to continue our theme right now of story time. Uh, this has been our theme all year long. Uh, we have been using uh, something here called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and if you're like, that looks like a children's Bible, you're smart, it is, but it is not just for children, it is fantastic, a really good take on things. Kind of their, their tagline right here is, is, every story whispers his name. And they show how every story in the Bible, even the ones that Jesus himself does not appear in, they're all about Jesus. That the entire Bible points to Jesus. And they stole that idea from Jesus. Our theme verse is painted back there and it's going to be up there. Uh, John five thirty nine. Jesus is speaking and he says, the scriptures point to me. This is um, actually kind of early on in Jesus' ministry, and he's talking to some Jewish religious leaders, and he's like, you guys have the whole thing memorized, which they did. The whole, what we call the Old Testament, the Bible split into two parts, traditionally called Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, the more I read it, the more I think there's really one testament, just with a gap in between. Um, but the, the Old and New are separated by Jesus. When Jesus shows up, that's the New Testament. And Jesus basically tells these guys, look, you've got the whole thing memorized and have failed to realize that it points to me. And so that's what we've been showing uh, and using the Jesus Story of the Bible all this year uh, to see that we're not looking at stories in the Bible, we're looking at the story of the Bible. Because the story of the Bible, even though the Bible is made up of 66 books and written over a tremendous amount of time and, and the events in them cover a tremendous amount of time, it's one story. It's the story of Jesus. That's what we've been looking at. Uh, really excited for what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight, giving us an opportunity to look at something that I'm thinking uh, a lot of us have uh, some familiarity with. If, even if we, some, sometimes this story we're going to talk about, people don't even know it's in the Bible, but they've heard the term, so I'm excited to look at that. Uh, before I go uh, any further, uh, I want to pray for us. So do what you do when you pray. God, thank you for tonight. Uh, thank you for each person that is here tonight. And God, I just thank you for what you've been showing me uh, from your word. Uh, and God, I just pray that, um, that right now you would get me out of the way and just say what you want to say. And uh, that you would enable each of us to hear the message that you want each of us to hear from tonight. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. 
Amen. All right, um, about a year ago, I, um, I shared this picture on social media. I made this up. Um, it's like a tweet that 2001-ish, which Twitter didn't even exist then, but anyway. Um, I have to say that I really don't get the appeal of coffee. And now today, I say things like, there really is no bad time of day for a good cup of coffee. Now, this is not about coffee. Some people that commented on it, I posted it on Instagram, but it linked over to Facebook and some people that commented on it on Facebook clearly demonstrated they didn't read the caption, um, which I'm just going to put that out there, a little bit of advice. If there's a picture, read the caption before you comment uh, on it, because it's not about coffee. It's about how what I've seen on social media is people do this not for themselves, but for other people. And they criticize them and target them for changing their minds. Have you seen stuff like this? where somebody posts uh, literally this exact thing, like two tweets that are years apart, which first of all, get a life if you're scrolling through somebody's Twitter feed for the last 20 years to be like, oh, look at that. But I, th- I, th- I wrote about how I think these, that this idea is like really dangerous to be criticizing and targeting people for changing their minds. Why, why do you think I think it's dangerous to, that this stuff happens? Like, what's the, what do you think I th- feel like the danger is of targeting people for changing their minds? Because we, we do it too? Okay. It discourages, it discourages people from changing their mind. Or from even daring to think. Or rethink. Because, y'all, the, I mean, some, like, if I was running for political office, which I am not going to do, but somebody would be like, look how wishy-washy he is. He can't even take a stand on coffee. It's like it's 20 years difference. I mean, good grief, if you have, I'm sorry, y'all, I'm like 20 plus years older than most of y'all. If y'all think the exact same when you're my age as you do right now about like anything, something's wrong. I mean, we need to grow, like we need to, we need to learn, we need to like develop and, and challenge our own thinking. I mean, so like, ask yourself, when's the last time I changed my mind about something? Or even not even going so far as changing my mind When's the last time I really thought about why I think what I think about a topic? See, a lot of times it's all about what's your stance? What do you believe about this? What do you think about this? What side are you on? You know, what you think is nowhere near as important as why you think what you think. All right, I would really encourage you to just think, when's the last time I really thought about why I think what I think? And, and rethought. Rethinking is a super important skill that, frankly, most of us are terrible at. Because rather than rethinking, we would just like to dig our heels in and just, you know, validate and justify ourselves. I learned a lot about rethinking last year when I read uh, this book, um, Think Again, by a man named Adam Grant. I know it's kind of small at the top of the subtitle, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Um, Fascinating book. Talks a lot about rethinking and why it's so hard to rethink. One of my favorite, like, one-liners from Grant is, Most of us are more interested in proving ourselves than improving ourselves. Right? Mm. It's like, it's not a Christian book per se, but you get that good Christian reaction. Mm, mm, Go ahead, preach. But but, um, rethinking, according to Adam Grant, requires humility, doubt, and curiosity. Humility, doubt, and curiosity. We're going to come back to those things throughout the course of the night because they're really, 
really important. But tonight what I want to do is I want to challenge us to, to rethink. I'm not saying you've got to change your mind. Sometimes you rethink and you're like, no, I do believe that. And I believe it even more strongly now after I've rethought it. And to think about our thinking. We're going to look at a very well-known Bible story uh, that I think is, is really helpful to practice this rethinking because we're going to get the opportunity tonight to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, and if we're willing to rethink, I think tonight's going to be really useful to show us just how powerful and transformative, and I do not use that word lightly, that word will pop up uh, later on, the power of, of rethinking, how transformative rethinking can be. So our question tonight that we're going to come back to a lot is, how willing am I to rethink? Um, if, you're, if you're new or hadn't been here in a while, this is what I like doing. I like giving us a question to think about. I think questions stick better than, than statements. And I think first-person questions are way better. Because if I ask you a question, that's nowhere near as, as impactful as you being willing to ask yourself a question. Now, here's the thing. You've kind of answered this question by what you first thought when you saw it. What a stupid question. Oh, <laughs> you're not willing to rethink very well, are you? <laughs> That's a really good question. Oh, okay, you are willing to rethink. So, but we're going to come back to this as we look at a story that is traditionally called uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, it's found in Luke uh, chapter 15, but I'm going to start off by reading the uh, Jesus storybook Bible version of it. Yeah, it'll pop up right there. They call it running away. So here we go. Jesus told this story about a boy who ran away. One day the boy gets to thinking, maybe if I didn't have my dad around telling me what's good for me all the time, I'd be happier. He's spoiling my fun, he thinks. Does my dad really want me to be happy? I mean, does my dad really love me? Now, right now you might be thinking, um, but Donnie, isn't his rethinking really bad? Okay, we're going to get there. Just sit tight. The son never thought about that before, but suddenly he doesn't know anymore. So the son goes to his father and says, Dad, I'm better off without you. I can look after myself. Just give me my share of your money. Now his father's sad, but he won't force his boy to stay, so he gives his son what he wants. Son takes the money, goes on a long, long journey to a far-off country, and everything's wonderful and perfect well, for a while. He can go wherever he wants, do whatever he wants, be whoever he wants. He is the boss. He is free. Now, sometimes he gets a strange, hungry, homesick feeling inside his heart, but then he just eats more or drinks more or buys more clothes or goes to more parties until it goes away. Huh. Parties more, eats more, drinks more to dull his feelings. And people say the Bible's not relevant today. <laughs> but soon his money runs out, and so do his friends. He ends up getting the only job he can find, feeding pigs. Keep in mind, Jesus is telling this story to Jewish people. This is the worst possible thing you can do. One day, he's so hungry and so desperate, he even tries some of the piggy food. What am I doing, he says suddenly, as if he's woken from a nightmare. He spits, yuck, all of it, yuck, out of his mouth. My father's rich, and here I am in a pigsty eating piggy food. He wipes his mouth, dusts himself off. I'm going home. As he starts for home, though, he begins to worry. Dad won't love me anymore. I've been too bad. He won't want me for his son anymore. So he practices his I'm sorry speech. All this time, what he doesn't know is that day after day, his dad's been standing on his porch, straining his eyes, looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home. He just can't stop loving him. He longs for the sound of his boy's voice. He can't be happy until he gets him back. The son's still a long way off, but he dad, his dad sees him coming, 
What will he do? Fold his arms and frown, shout, that'll teach you, and just you wait, young man. No, that's not how the story goes. Dad leaps off the porch, races down the hill, through the gap in the hedge, up the road. Before his son can even begin his I'm sorry speech, his dad runs to him, throws his arms around him, and can't stop kissing him. Let's have a party, Dad shouts. My boy's home. He ran away. I lost him, but now I have him back. Jesus told them, God is like the dad who couldn't stop loving his boy. And people are like the son who said, does my dad really want me to be happy? See, Jesus told people this story to show them what God is like and to show people what they are like so they could know however far they ran, however well they hid, however lost they were, it wouldn't matter because God's children could never run too far or be too lost for God to find them. Now, there's a lot going on in that story. I mean, if we were to fully unpack it, we'd be here for several hours, so we're not going to fully unpack it. Um, But I remember reading an article several years ago It talked about when people in different places in the world read this story, they notice different things. Okay, it mentions, and we're going to look at the Luke account in just a little bit, but the Luke account mentions something that Jesus' story Bible doesn't, which is that a famine hit. Right about the time the sun runs out of money, a famine hit. And let's be honest, most of us read right over that, because we don't have a lot of experience with that. But if you live in a part of the world where famines are a thing, that part gets your attention. And see, that's part of rethinking. It's to try to look at it from somebody else's perspective, to see the things that, that jump out at them, even though they might not jump out um, to you. But Jesus, the Jesus story of the Bible says that Jesus told people this story to show them what God is like and to show people what they are like. To show people what God is like and to show people what they are like. All right, so according to this story, what's God like? Loving. Loving. Forgiving. Forgiving. Okay, both of those are unconditional, okay? Patient. Ooh, let's go. Let's him go. Okay. Welcoming. Likes the party. <laughs> Who's he like? Who's God in the story? The Father. Okay. Let me unpack this for a second. I think this is really important. Because the idea of God as Father, uh, to me, I love that idea. Because my dad's awesome. I got a great relationship with my dad. Um, I understand that's not the case for everybody. I get that. Okay, some of us don't have good relationships with our dad. Some of us don't know our dad. Some of us wish we didn't know our dad. I mean, I get that. Okay, but here's an opportunity for rethinking. Okay, you can look at God out here through the lens of your earthly dad. And God's never going to look right. Because your dad's imperfect. Just like Lexi and Carrington's dad is imperfect. And if you don't know who those are, those are my daughters. (laughs) But if you flip it. This is a perfect lens. If you look at God, if you look at your dad through the lens of God, if you look at anybody through the lens of God, it'll change the way you see that person. Okay? So if it's hard for you, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this is going to fix it, just that one little, oh, he switched his hands, cool, I got it now, and I have a great relationship with my dad. I understand that. But I just want to encourage you to rethink through that, okay? 
All right, so that's a great, great response there. So take all of those adjectives y'all described and put them in front of the word father. And yeah, that's who, that's who God is according to this story. But Jesus also told the story to tell people what they're like. What are people like? They suck. We're arrogant. Ungrateful. Fickle. Ooh, good one. Spiteful. Selfish. Yeah, like self-centered. Yeah, we suck. That was just a good. That's, that might have been the best response. It just summarizes all of them. But yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not. Not good. Um, you know, we want stuff. We're super materialistic. Okay. And sometimes we're going to talk about how this can be a good thing. But sometimes we have all these doubts. Like at the beginning of the story, that's what starts the whole thing for the son, right? Is his doubt. But here's the thing that's really important. Because I mentioned that, that, that rethinking, that doubt is an important part of rethinking. Doubt's not the problem. What you do with doubt is. Okay? There's a lot of Christian traditions out there that if you start expressing any doubts about your belief, anything, you're just going to get told you've got to have more faith. That doesn't help. Okay? When you're struggling with your faith and you're doubting your faith to be told to have more of what you're doubting, Thank you. Just not super helpful. But here's what I want you to notice what happens with these doubts. At the beginning, the son's doubts push him away from his father. But then at the end, even though he's doubting how his dad's going to respond, he brings those doubts with him when he comes back to his father. He brings the doubts with him. So bring your doubts to God. He can handle them. Even if they're doubts, if He's even there. God's big enough to handle your doubts. If He's not, He's not God. And if I wanted to just stick with the Jesus Bible uh, story, we'd be done. And some of you are like, okay, cool. I'm not sticking with that. We've got more to talk about. But that would be a good talk. God loves you enough to handle your doubts. So bring your doubts to God. He can deal with it. That would be a good talk. That would, that would be a good, solid positive talk. It would, it would help, I think, a lot of us. And if you're, if you're struggling with doubts, I'm happy to talk more about that. But there's more to the story. If you're familiar with this story from Luke 15, who's missing? Yeah, there's another son, okay? This is the younger son that goes off and does his thing. There's an older brother. There's an older son uh, also. Luke 15, 11, the story begins by saying, there was a man who had two sons, two of them, okay? He had two sons, so, you know, whether we've never heard this story before, or maybe you're like, oh, prodigal, I've heard that word before, didn't know that was a Bible thing. Um, the interesting part is, um, it's kind of not, because the word prodigal never shows up in the actual story. It's in the headings. But Luke, who wrote, who wrote down when Jesus told this story, or Jesus' account of the story, uh, Luke didn't put the headings there. And uh, most headings called this the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son, and... I think if we're willing to rethink, one of the questions we might ought to ask ourselves is, what would Jesus call this story? He wouldn't call it the parable of the prodigal son. Because the story's not about the sons. Remember when we asked, like, what, what, are, what are people like? And I think somebody said self-centered. Yeah, that's why people gave this the heading of the story of the prodigal son. Because then it's about them. This story's about God. This is the parable of the searching father who always goes to look for his kids. 
Because we're going to talk in just a second about how he goes to look for the older son also. Now, um, not related to the talk at all, but something I just want to mention real quick. Notice that when I read the running away account of the Jesus story of the Bible, I didn't take it and go, well, I disagree with that. I didn't cancel it because I disagreed with one thing about it. Okay? Just real quick, that, that, that's, a, that's a philosophy that's just not going to work if you're going to cancel people or things when you disagree with one thing because you're going to end up canceling everybody, including yourself, because you're going to disagree with yourself at some point. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth, y'all. So just, you can, you can love, be friends with, have relationships with people that you disagree with, because nobody in this room agrees on everything. We don't cancel people because, we disagree, because they disagree with us. We cancel people because they disagree with us on something that we've put on a pedestal that it doesn't need to be on. So, if you get angry and want to cancel somebody, I remember reading once that anger is a good indication of when you've made something an idol. If you want to know if you've got any idols in your life, see what makes you angry. That's not even the talk. That's just a little freebie. <laughs> it's a talk within a talk. Inception. Um, all right. So, the Luke 15 story is, is very much like that. There's a party, but then the party is not the end of the story. So, we're going to pick up in Luke 15... Uh, Verse 25, so the party has begun. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Fattened calf, when when you would basically pick one calf that was born each year, you would feed it a special diet, fatten it up, so when you had a party, you could have prime rib that was really, really good. That's what fattened calf's all about. Um, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders that you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Everybody's in there eating filet. I just want some barbecue goats, basically what he's saying. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, what? That's not in the story anywhere. I mean, good grief, older brother. Talk about just creating stuff. Anyway, when he comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. And I just envision dad just like lowering his voice and just being like, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Again, that's just the, like the last third of the story, and we could spend hours looking at that. There's a, ton, there's a ton going on here. Now, typically when this story is discussed, we focus on the differences between the two sons. I mean, with good reason, there are some differences. But there's a number of similarities, and one really important one to keep in mind is they have both turned their back on their dad. Okay, they have both turn their back on their dad, and in both cases, dad runs out to them. He sees a younger son coming up the driveway, and he runs. And by the way, adult men in these days did not run, because you had to figure out what to do with your robes and everything, and it was super awkward, and it was embarrassing for everybody, but he does. And then there's a party going on, and he finds out his older son's in that same driveway, pouting, and he goes out to him. This is just what the father does. Now, the big difference is that the younger son, he's done everything wrong. 
The older son's done everything right for the wrong reasons. Now, to understand why Jesus told this story this way, you need to know who his audience is. And by the way, if you're ever reading through the Gospels and kind of like, I want to read it a little bit differently this time, pay attention to who Jesus says what to. It's fascinating. When he's talking to individuals, when he's talking to his closest followers, when he's talking to the crowds, when he's talking to Jewish religious leaders, when he's talking to women, it is fascinating how Jesus doesn't change his message, but changes his approach based on who he's talking to. And so at the beginning of Luke 15, we read who his audience is. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So you basically have two groups. Your non-religious folks, the tax collectors and sinners, and then your super-religious folks, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, typically with this story, what we do is we say that the older brother represents the religious folks and the younger brother represents the irreligious folks. And then we ask ourselves, well, who am I in this story? I don't think that's the right question. I don't think that's the right question. So again, I'm going to ask us, how willing am I to rethink? Because what if instead of asking, which son am I, we ask ourselves, when have I been which son? Because the reality is we've all been the person who did the wrong thing, like the younger son. And we've all also been the person who did the right thing for the wrong reasons. We've all been both sons. And we look at this story and we think they have nothing in common. But if we'll rethink, if we'll look at it, we'll see, we'll see that sometimes the further apart you get from somebody... The more it turns into a circle, not a line. You realize you got a lot more in common. Both of them wanted dad's stuff more than they wanted a relationship with dad. Both of them are very self-centered. Both of them have no problem whatsoever humiliating dad. And this is an important thing in first century Jewish culture, which is very much an honor-shame culture. Younger son says, Dad, I'm better off without you. I want my share of the inheritance. Dad, I wish you were dead. It's literally what he says to him. Dad's throwing a big party. He's the host of the party. And he has to walk out of that party because his older son is in the driveway pouting like a child. And the things y'all were saying about what do we learn about God, the patience, the forgiving, all of that, it's fantastic because y'all, in this day and age, When younger son walks up to dad and says, I'm better off without you, give me me my share of the inheritance, dad could have easily said, all right, then do life without me. But nope, I'm keeping the inheritance. You're done. Could disown him. When he goes out to older son and older son says, I'm not going in that house for this party, he can just say, well, don't ever come in and do it again. Get out. Dad could have disowned both of them because of the way they shamed him. But that's not what he did. And they shamed him because both of them are convinced they're right. Both of them are remarkably self-righteous. And I know self-righteous is the word that we oftentimes just equate with and relate to religious folks, but this definition of self-righteous that I found shows it isn't just religious folks. So self-righteous, found this defined from Webster, having, a, having or characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that's hilarious, That one is totally correct and morally superior. You don't have to be religious 
for that to describe you. I think a lot of times religious people get dumped on as self-righteous. I'm not saying religious people aren't self-righteous because we absolutely can be. But you don't have to be religious for that to describe you. Because if I'm certain I'm totally correct, I'm never going to rethink. There's no need for me to rethink if I'm certain I'm totally correct. Which is why I think Adam Grant talks so much and think again about about the importance of humility and doubt and curiosity. Because you don't think about humility and doubt and curiosity when you think about the term self-righteous. Those are completely opposed to one another. Now, uh, I'm betting for some of us, when I say the word self-righteous, some of us see some faces, right? Like some of us are like, yeah, I know some people that are that. Now maybe you don't, maybe you're like, I kind of need a, can I get a picture of what this looks like? Yes, Jesus paints a fantastic picture of what self-righteousness looks like a little bit later in Luke when he tells this story. Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That dude right there, God. I'm glad I'm not like him. Because I fast twice a week and give a tithe of all that I get. So the Pharisee, the Jewish religious leader, Thanks God that he's not like the tax collector. What a jerk. I mean, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee, right? Oh, oh, see there? Look at that. Super religious people get dumped on for being self-righteous, but irreligious people can do it too. It's pretty simple. That guy's a jerk. He's thanking God he's not like him. I'm glad I'm not like him. Oh, wait. Pot, kettle, black, oh yeah, okay. See, because a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about uh, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus uh, was a chief tax collector, and he was a short dude, so he was climbing up in this tree to see Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to go to your house. And everybody was like, why is he going to Zacchaeus' house? He's a chief tax collector. But if you look at the story... It's not the Pharisees and the religious folks that are complaining about Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. It's the other people that have been rejected by the religious leaders. The Pharisees complain when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the tax collectors complain when Jesus eats with Zacchaeus. They were being Pharisaical and didn't even realize it. You can be just like the Pharisee. Like when you say, when I say I'm thankful I'm not like the Pharisee, I show that I'm just like him. We can be Pharisaical about the Pharisees. Now I understand that's some Bible language, so let me just give you a 2023 translation. We can become intolerant of intolerant people. I have no patience for his impatience. Did you hear yourself? I cannot tolerate their intolerance. But that's what we say, with, especially with the older brother in this story. Like, he's not going to go into the party. There's, there's dancing. Okay, there's food. It's a good time. But no. And so we, we just have no tolerance. We can't tolerate how intolerant he is. Let me ask you a question. If you know the story, what did the older brother end up doing? 
That's correct. We don't know. It's this, this, Jesus just like leaves it on a cliffhanger. We don't know what he did. We have no idea. Let me ask a much more difficult question. What do you hope he did? I mean, do we hope he just sat out there until he got tired and then just walked around some back door and went to his room and went to sleep? Do we hope he was like, enough of this family, I'm out? Or do we hope he went to the party? Here's the thing. He's a self-righteous jerk. There's just no, there's no way around that. Okay, they're, 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 I mean, there really is. There's, there's no way around that. This dude is self-righteous. But read the Bible. It's full of them. It's full of self-righteous people. Okay, it's like, man, they're, they're all hypocrites. Well, yeah. It's like, hey, that's why I don't like going to church. It's full of hypocrites. No, it's not. We got room for some more. <laughs> I mean, but there's self-righteous people all throughout the Bible. That Pharisee, who's like, I'm so glad I'm not like this dude. But let me ask you a question. Do you hope that that Pharisee listened to the tax collector's prayer? Which, by the way, the tax collector just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do I hope that the tax collector hears that prayer and is like, you know, maybe that's a better prayer than what I just prayed. Or there's a, there's a, a man that's referred to as a rich young ruler. Comes to, comes to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, well, you got to keep the commandments. He says, which ones? And Jesus lists a whole bunch of them, and he says, I have kept all of those since my youth. No, you haven't. But he's that self-righteous. Jesus tells him to sell everything and follow him, and he doesn't do it. Do we hope he changed his mind? Do we hope that, that at some point he was like, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sell everything I own, give it away like Jesus told me to, and go find him. Or what about Jonah? Jonah's from the first part of the Bible. Jonah gives the worst sermon in the history of sermons. Walks into this town and go. And it, by the way, to get into the town after God told him to go twice, he had to have a whole series of unfortunate events like getting swallowed by a fish and then vomited out. And I think fish vomit can't smell good. So, yeah. Um, he literally walks in the middle of the town. 40 days and your guys are toast. Walks out. <laughs> walks out and goes and finds him a nice place to watch the fire and brimstone that he is confident God is going to rain down. What's Jonah do at the end of the story? We don't know. Yeah, I think, I think Jesus had Jonah in mind when he's telling this story. I think, the, I think this story is Jonah's the older brother and, and the city's the younger brother. Jesus is a smart dude. He knew what he was doing. But do we hope that, that Jonah, you know, changes his mind? Do we hope that that Jonah walks back into the town and is like, all right, guys, that first sermon was terrible. Let me explain how much God loves you. Do we hope these people in the Bible changed their mind and repented and started following Jesus? What about the people in our lives that have hurt us? Do we hope they rethink and repent and start following Jesus? How willing am I to rethink that person who hurt me so badly. It's a lot easier when we're talking about people in the Bible. See, again, I know I'm referencing a lot, but it's a really good book. That Adam Grant book, Think Again, it's not a Christian book, but rethinking is vital to following Jesus. And Jesus shows this in some of his very first words um, in his ministry. Uh, 
Mark's gospel has Jesus starting off his ministry this way. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And maybe you look at that and you're like, I don't see the rethinking. Well, let's look at the God's word translation and you'll see it. It says that Jesus has, the time has come, the God's kingdom is near, change the way you think and act and believe the good news. That is one of the best definitions of repent I have ever seen in my life. Change the way you think and act. Because when we hear repent, we think behavior modification. But it's not just about changing what we do. It's about changing the way we think. See, and this is why this rethinking is important when it comes to Jesus. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah, their king to come. They were expecting their Messiah to ride in on a war horse with his sword already dripping with Roman blood and go through Jerusalem cutting down every Roman that he saw until all the Romans headed back to Italy. And then a poor carpenter shows up on the scene claiming to be that Messiah. So see, Jesus knew they had to rethink what they thought. Those that didn't rethink missed him. They missed Jesus. And I think this still happens. I think it happens because oftentimes we lack humility and doubt and curiosity. Now I want to unpack these three words a little bit by kind of flipping them on their head. Um, give me some, some opposites, some antonyms for humility. Pride, okay. Pride, arrogance, pig-headed. Okay. All right, those are good. All right, what about, uh, what about some opposites for doubt? Confident. Faith, okay. Mm, assurance. Assurance where more often than not when we aren't willing to have any doubt? Maybe some self-assurance? You know, maybe some self-centeredness? What about opposites for curiosity? Ooh, stagnation, closed-mindedness. Ooh, that's a good Judgmental, okay. Okay, stubborn. Skeptical, yeah. What about like apathetic? Maybe like indifferent, you know? Okay, those words we just said, how many of those would describe the older brother in Luke 15? Like all of them, right? How many of them would describe the younger brother? Like all of them, right? Yeah, hmm, look at that. They're not, as, they're not as different as we think they are. How many of them would describe us from time to time? Well, don't do that, Donnie. Now you made it personal. I mean, that's just mean. <laughs> so what's the difference between the sons? If they've got all these things in common, what's the difference other than their birth order? Well, let's look at a little part in Luke 15 that is important. So he finds himself here eating with the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. When he came to his senses, when he rethought, he changed his thinking and it changed his life. And I think the same can happen for us, hopefully, before we're in a pigsty. And uh, a man named Paul, who wrote a whole bunch of letters to churches, 
uh, that make up a good portion of the second part of the Bible seem to think that rethinking was important too. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, fascinating thing about this word renewing. Um, talk about this a lot. The Bible was not written in American English. It was written uh, in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. And the Greek word that's translated renewing can also mean renovating. Now, at my house, we love us some HGTV. So we watch renovation shows a lot. Hometown's our favorite one, the one out of Laurel, Mississippi. Um, that's our favorite one. But let me ask you a question. Regardless of how much you know about renovation, what's the first step in a renovation? <laughs> destroy! <laughs> Not demo, destroy! <laughs> yeah, demolition! You've got to destroy stuff. Okay, there's an HGTV show called No Demo Reno. That's a terrible title. It's not accurate. They still do demo every time. They don't have to pull permits because they don't knock down any walls. It should be No Permit Reno, but that doesn't sound as good. So, but that's never the only step. Okay, that's, that's never the only thing that they do. It's, it's not just about you know, tearing stuff down. It's not just about deconstructing. And deconstructing is a word that in recent years has become... Um, it's just become more of a thing that we talk about of people deconstructing their, their, their faith. And I, mean, I got no problem with you thinking about things and trying to figure stuff out. I think that's great. But if you deconstruct a building and don't reconstruct, what are you left with? Well, like rubble until somebody hauls it off and then it's a vacant, empty lot, right? Demo doesn't take a lot of thought. Give me a sledgehammer, I'll go to town. Okay, cool. Building, construction, takes a lot of thinking. And oftentimes a lot of rethinking. Every show ever on HGTV, they've got their plan and then they tear open a wall and they're like, crap, termites. We've got to rethink the plan now. And that's just, that's just the way it is. So if I find myself maybe feeling like an empty lot, feeling like there's got to be more to it, maybe I need to ask myself, how willing am I to rethink? Now look, I've deconstructed parts of my faith over the last, you know, whatever. I see, I got baptized when I was 13, 45, 32 years. Yeah, there are things I used to believe I don't believe anymore. But I didn't just tear stuff down. I built stuff back up in the process. That's super important, y'all. And, if, and maybe you're like, well, Donnie, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm not really sure about this whole, you know, my faith thing. I don't really feel like I have one right now. It's like, well, okay. Are you willing to rethink this whole Jesus thing then if you're not a Christian? And if you are a Christian, are you willing to rethink what that looks like for you? You know, if you're like, there's got to be more to it than this. If you're thinking that, then it's time to rethink some other things too, probably. Because Luke 15 shows that if we're willing to rethink, we can find ourselves in an amazing party with lots of people that love us. But if we're not willing to rethink, we find ourselves on the outside, looking in, all by ourselves. All the while, our Heavenly Father invites us in and waits for us to join Him. 
See, if what the Bible says in Luke 15 and Romans 12 and a whole lot of other places too, and I believe it is because I believe the Bible is true, rethinking is a vital part of the transformed life that understands what God's good and perfect will is. Y'all, a lot of us in the room just are trying to figure out what God's will is for us. What am I supposed to do? Romans 12, 2 says that if we'll be transformed by the renewing of our, our minds, we'll be able to figure it out. I don't, it may not be a snap your fingers thing and figure it out, but it might be. If we're willing to rethink. You may rethink and come to the exact same conclusion. You may rethink and completely change your mind. You may rethink and change a little bit. But regardless, if you really take the time to rethink, I don't think you'll ever regret it. I really don't. So maybe along with the humility, the doubt, and the curiosity, we should say it takes courage to rethink. Because I think it does. But it's worth it. Especially if by renewing our minds, we can understand what God's will is. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. As we have the humility, the doubt, and the curiosity to rethink. Let's pray, y'all. God, thank you for being our perfect Heavenly Father. Thank you for desiring a relationship with us. Thank you for your love being just embarrassingly open to the point of running down the driveway to hug us and kiss us. God, I pray that you would give us the humility, the doubt, the curiosity, and the courage that it takes to ask ourselves, why do I think what I think? It's not an easy thing to do, God, but you can use that to transform us, God. And that is... That is what it means to follow you, is to not be like the world, but to be transformed. So God, give us the courage, give us the strength to rethink. Thank you for loving us, thank you for taking care of us, thank you for being our God, our Lord, and our Savior. Thank you for Jesus, it's in his name we pray.